When Saul saw David go forth against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I cannot tell. And the king said, Inquire whose son the stripling is. And as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. When he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him and gave it to David and his armor, and even his sword and his bow and his girdle. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. The word of the Lord. Jonathan is King Saul's son, a very nice young man as far as I can tell, and heir to the throne. David is the strapping, young, ambitious shepherd boy who will eventually usurp Jonathan's place as rightful heir and take the throne himself. But for some inexplicable reason, The first moment Jonathan lays eyes on David, who is fresh from slaughtering a giant, blood and dirt and sweat on his brow and chest, the dripping bloody head of Goliath in his hands, Jonathan seizes and he is overwhelmed with love for David. A love so deep that then and there he pledges his life to David shockingly, strips himself of his robes and his armor, gives all his masculine paraphernalia over to David. It's intense. In a sort of weird, shallow, soap opery, love at first sight way. And the two have been celebrated over many years of biblical interpretation in Sunday school curriculum far and wide for their special friendship. No Sunday school teacher, in my experience, however, ever explored with us the homoerotic subtext running through the narrative. Though this story is also celebrated for that subtext. Almost every article I could find on this text was arguing either for or against that subtext. You might think that this would just be a recent debate, but in fact, it goes back to medieval times. No kidding. When David and Jonathan's friendship was, back then, David and Jonathan's friendship was used as a sort of coded reference 
for what couldn't be spoken aloud at the time. I guess it might have been like Monk one said, Eusebius and Galen, their love is like the love of David and Jonathan. Monk two then knows not to put them in the same bunk. <laughs> or maybe two put them in the same bunk. I'm not that familiar with medieval monk codes. But it was kind of a thing. Dear parents, says the Archbook edition of this story, David the shepherd and Jonathan the prince enjoyed a unique friendship. Discuss with your child what is a friend. They may have profound insights into this relationship. And just talking about it will cause them to think about it. I think that's a great plan. But I kind of don't think that they were envisioning a discussion about homosexuality. I actually don't remember my dad bringing it up once in our family devotions where we read this book about David and Jonathan, which I meant to be able to hold in my hands, but it is called The Secret Arrows. Suggestive, I guess, if you think in a sort of, in a sort of way. And scholars do find a lot of phallic imagery in this story. Don, Jonathan does shoot some secret arrows. And there's a scene at the end of the story that is very enigmatic in the Hebrew, where David and Jonathan go into a field to meet up secretly. After Jonathan tells David he has to flee because Saul is trying to kill him, it goes like this. David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face into the ground and bowed three times, and they kissed one another and wept on one another until David had recovered himself. It's the wept on one another until David had recovered himself that is the difficult phrase. I don't think I'll spell out the innuendo for you or voice some of the alternative translations. But use your imaginations. Never a bad thing to use. Though I suppose it's possible to get carried away. But maybe sometimes it's fruitful to be carried away by imagination. Shipping, short for relationshiping or slash fiction, is a very popular activity these days. I'm sure you're familiar with it, or maybe not. But anyway, it's a sort of subgenre of fan fiction focused on finding signs or depicting romantic relationships between two characters of the same gender. It might include fictional characters, or it might be real people. A lot of people think that slash fiction started in the 70s, when mostly female Star Trek fans started reading erotic subtext into the relationship between Captain Kirk and Lieutenant Spock. You know what? If you look for these... I'm pretty sure you'll find them. Like the place in Star Trek, the motion picture, where Spock is lying down in sickbay, and he says now he realizes that emotions play an important role in the richness of life. Kirk is sitting on the bed beside him. 
Spock clasps Kirk's hand and looks him in the eye and says he understands now this simple feeling. Or you might glimpse it in little bits of dialogue, like Kirk says, Mr. Spock. Mr. Spock says, I'm in preposition and prepared, Captain. Anyway, slash fic. Everybody's doing it. Get on board. When asked about the legitimacy of Kirk Spock, they often combine names, Gene Roddenberry said, yeah, there's certainly some of that. Certainly love overtones, deep love. We never suggested in this series physical love between the two, but we certainly had the feeling that the affection was sufficient for that, if that were the particular style of the 23rd century. So there's this sense that even if it wasn't realized in the original text, it's not exactly a misreading either. There's a blurring of boundaries between canon and interpretation, always. There are overt conscious layers to a text, and there are unconscious layers. The unofficial narratives can destabilize the official narratives. To me, this is so full of possibility. You know, maybe some of these female slash fic writers in the 70s, with what might have been called their midrash, helped pave the way to a more just society, to marriage equality. At the time, these women were derided by male nerds who insisted that fandom should stick to the canon. Those male nerds. But you know what? There is no going back now. Since the internet slash fic has exploded, there are trillions of words written, scenes imagined, dialogue created, and it's not actually just teenage girls at all. Academics do it. I heard a lawyer talk about her slash fic work on NPR. It's huge. And it's not just some nerdy sci-fi thing. Harry Draco is a very popular ship. Sherman, no, Sherlock Holmes and John Watson, or John Locke, is a very popular ship. You can find slash fiction about almost any character that you can possibly imagine. But even if you don't think that you're going to go home and investigate this on the internet, maybe you can't imagine ever being in the least bit interested in any of this, John Locke, Potfoy, Obama Boehner. <laughs> Still consider this. There was a time when the creators, the writers of the canon, known among fic writers as TPTB or the powers that be, could deride or ignore all these imaginative retellings as merely a bunch of little fickers messing with the sacred edifice. But the powers that be can no longer ignore it. There's a reshaping of power dynamics going on 
a sort of victory for the untrammeled imagination. Fanfic is subversive. If a canonical worldview is entirely straight white male, the fans will actively resist it. I mean, right on, don't you think? I love that. Or I've recently grown fond of the idea with the help of my daughter Olivia, who suggested at the dinner table when I was talking about what I'd been reading about David and Jonathan. She said it's a lot like shipping. And I asked her to write a report on Slash Fic for me, which she did, and I just want to say, isn't she great? So, shipping didn't begin with Kirk and Spock. First, there was David and Jonathan. Javis. Donathan. Or David Onathan. Narratives have subtexts. Meaning is not transparent in a single isolated text. The reader always participates in the creation of meaning. I mean, that began with the first story ever, ever told. Someone tells a story around a campfire. The next night, someone who heard that story tells it around a different fire, borrowing major elements from the first story, using the same characters, but adding, because it's absolutely impossible not to, her own interpretation. History is interpretation. Literature is borrowing and adapting. Every telling is a retelling with interpretive elements. For instance, the Emperor Augustus, seeking to secure his imperial dynasty, says to Virgil, dude, write a story about Aeneas where he's all patriotic and stuff. And Virgil's like, oh my God, I will. And the Aeneid is born. It's all fanfic. You should check out the history of biblical interpretation. The articulation of what is repressed in the biblical narrative is the genius of rabbinic midrash. Some interpretations of the Bible seem horrible and abysmal to me. And some seem beautiful and utterly redemptive. I applaud the children's Bible story people for their desire to get kids talking about friendship. To say friendship is important is an understatement. Maybe the biggest understatement ever, ever of all time, I don't know. Karl Barth, arguably the most important theologian of the 20th century and one of my favorites, said, and I believe him on most things, though not everything, he said that God created humans to be in intimate relationship with God's self. And Barth called this relationship friendship. I'm sure the German word sounds less cheesy, trivial, flimsy, and sentimental. I've never heard a German word that sounded sentimental. <laughs> Bart uses friendship because his point is that God didn't create humans because God wanted a bunch of little inferior beings to worship God 
or admire God? What kind of narcissistic, egomaniacal God would do that? God, God desired the sense of equality and the sense of intimacy of a friendship. God didn't want to be alone, above or beyond. God wanted to be with. Because humans weren't into the vulnerability and the sort of naked exposure that comes with intimacy, they reject that friendship. The story of the fall, blah, blah, blah. But still, we are created in and for relationship. You don't have a true self in you that is independent and self-sufficient and unrelated. That's a delusion. Our being is being in relationship. And we are being created moment by moment by everything and everyone we are connected to. Friendship is a liberating dependence where we're freed not to be centered in ourselves, self-enclosed, alienated, lonely. We're made to love our neighbor, which is not so much, according to Bart, helping them out as being pressed up against them and your fellow humanity, their impotence and misery and futility, sometimes exposing your impotence, misery, and futility. And also often the radical exuberance of communion. But anyway, we find our genuine humanity in relationship, friendship. This just feels right to me. But... I'm not sure that the story of David and Jonathan is a great place to look for love, if you're reading it straight. Reading it straight is really kind of ugly, to be honest. Pretty depressing. The story of David is a lot like the stories of kings all over the ancient Near East. They're always chosen by God. They're always great warriors. They're always hyper-masculine. And their stories are written such a way as to show that their dynasty is God-ordained, whatever God it happens to be, an empire destined to stand forever. In other words, pretty much propaganda. It's been suggested, and it seems possible to me, that the writer of the David stories didn't mean for the reader to read it straight, but rather to read it a little against the grain, shed of naivete, on the lookout for hints that might make them question the royal narrative. The text spends a lot of time sort of protecting David from accusations that aren't exactly spelled out in the text, but that are very apparent. For instance, he orchestrates murder while maintaining plausible deniability. He joins the enemy Philistines as a mercenary. To be quick about it, he is a cunning usurper who murders his way to a throne that isn't rightfully his. Some scholars think that David didn't actually exist. These were just invented stories to prop up an oppressive monarchy that was not even trying to be faithful to the God of creation. But you know what? Maybe worst of all, David is a terrible friend. 
Jonathan knits his soul to David upon their first meeting. David barely seems to notice. Doesn't mention having any affection for Jonathan in return. Jonathan's submission to David is so utter and complete, you have to wonder if it doesn't look a little humiliating. He hands over all his symbols of masculinity to David, his weapons and armor. He strips himself as his robe, of his robe. He rushes to give David everything, even his right to the throne. The text stresses David's hypermasculinity in comparison. Jonathan looks more effeminate, emotional, this sudden and complete infatuation with David. It sort of undermines Jonathan's character in terms, at the time, of a man fit to be king. David isn't a good friend. He uses Jonathan. Jonathan knits his soul to David. Thus, David gains an informer in his enemy's household. He gets Jonathan to conspire against his own father. When Jonathan dies and Saul conveniently kills himself, David does mourn. But even then, he speaks of John's love for him, which surpasses the love of women, without ever really speaking of his love for Jonathan. You know, I just think that maybe reading things straight is not always the greatest way to read. There's something to be said for reading against the grain, a lot to be said, innumerable, inexhaustively creative things to be said, necessary, subversive, essential things to be said, retold again and again. Queer it up, man. Read subversively. The powers that be always need subverting. The word of God is a continually creative word. Maybe that's really, really true, like a redemptive word. Not black and white words on a page, but something much more alive, something that comes alive when we read it. In the subtexts, in between the lines. It's admittedly hard to believe that God is alive and that God speaks, but that is what faith is. And it's a lot more interesting than believing in something immovable, something fixed, something set in stone. Much more full of redemptive possibilities than trying to guard borders against subversive intrusion. So Jesus is called the son of David like 17 times in the Gospels. It's kind of interesting. I'm not sure that David would have been impressed with that son. David slays so many Philistines. David is a mighty man of battle when he comes home from slaughtering. The women dance in the streets singing his praises. Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his ten thousands. David pursues power. His glory is in his military might. David inspires Jonathan's love by holding a giant bloody giant's head in his hand. Jesus 
subverts the picture of the Davidic monarchy. Jesus subverts the expectations of a Davidic Messiah in every way imaginable. Thank God for subversive possibilities. 